Some of you will be familiar with the name Greg Mortensen. And he's a person that I believe started off really well. Started off with good intentions, with a, with a great vision, uh, with a lot of potential. But somewhere along the line, things went wrong. Uh, he grew up uh, where his parents uh, both uh, served as teachers in a girls' school in Tanzania. Uh, he learned to speak fluent Swahili. Uh, he was, uh, after growing up there, moved back to the States. Uh, he served in the military, went on to become a mountaineer, uh, where he uh, was uh, a mountain climber in many of the, uh, the highest and remote, most remote settings in the world. And it was in the midst of those travels that he became burdened for the plight of so many girls uh, growing up in Pakistan and Afghanistan without access to education. And so he had a vision to do something about it. He wanted to build schools to provide education for them. He founded uh, a charity, charity called the Central Asia Institute and began to raise funds and make uh, known the needs of uh, these uh, girls in need of education. But it was difficult for him to get a hearing. It was difficult for people to get interested in uh, what he wanted to, uh, uh, to communicate to them and the vision that he had until he wrote a book called Three Cups of Tea. And it was a page turner. It was a, uh, by all accounts, this fascinating story that included uh, exciting adventures. They were amazing exploits and heroic acts of charity. Uh, it was so amazing uh, that it remained on the New York Times bestseller list for an amazing four years. Uh, it captured people's attention. And with this book and the fame that it brought, invitations started pouring in for him to come and speak all over. And all of a sudden, the work of the Central Asia Institute and the education of girls in Pakistan and in Afghanistan became prominent in people's minds. Amazing book, made an amazing impact. It was an amazing story. The only problem was it wasn't completely true. In fact, some of the best parts uh, turned out to be uh, fabrications. For instance, one of, the, one of the stories contained this amazing account of his capture by the Taliban and his escape, and he even had a picture of himself with his Taliban captors in the book. That was probably a mistake, because one of his so-called captors turned out to be a research director <laughs> who identified himself in the picture and said, we were lavishing hospitality on this man. We certainly hadn't taken him prisoner, nor had he, was he our captive. He had to backtrack that story, and... Uh, and many other stories that he would later admit were either fabrications or exaggerations. When the scandal broke, uh, obviously it wasn't just him that was affected. Uh, he had a co-author who had done most of the work in recounting, putting into words the stories that he fed him. And that co-author, David Rellin, suffered emotionally and financially in the wake of the scandal. 
he actually went on to commit suicide in the wake of that. A government investigation found that Mortensen had misspent some $6 million and that only 40% of the money that he raised actually went to the education of girls. He seemed to have such a good start, such a great vision. And yet somewhere along the way, he lost his way. And it started with likely one small compromise that led to another and to another. And it wasn't just his life that was affected. It was the people who trusted him, the people who partnered with him, and ultimately the people to whom he had sought to do so much good for. Most likely, you and I won't ever attempt anything daring enough or amazing enough for our temptations to compromise to ever be newsworthy. And yet, you and I are faced day by day with small opportunities to just stretch the truth a little bit, to bend our morals, to sacrifice our integrity, to do things which we tell ourselves are really good things, but that very step of compromise leads us in paths that we would never have dreamed that we would end up in. We started off last, li- last time looking at a man named Abraham and what, he, what we see in his life of how to experience the blessing of God. Today's passage, as we get into the second half of that same chapter, is a, an, an experience of now having been promised the blessing of God to sacrifice some of that promise through compromise through missteps, and through uh, not only a picture of what it, what it is to be led into compromise and some of the mess that it creates, but also what we do when we get stuck there. What, what, what hope there is for us and what path there is out of uh, a compromise that has made a mess in our lives. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to, uh, to turn there with me uh, now. I'm going to be reading from Genesis chapter 12. And uh, if you'd follow along, I'll read from verses 10 to 20. Genesis 12, verses 10 to 20. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. For her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. 
So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of God. Now, Abraham gives here, I believe, a picture of how things can start to unravel. And the first thing he shows me is that compromise feels like a solution. It presents itself as a way of fixing something. It seems natural. It seems like an opportunity to make things better, to to deal with a problem. It feels like a solution, but it never is. As the passage begins, we're, we're still thinking, if you heard, us, heard the message last week, we're still thinking of those amazing promises that were made to Abraham. They were promises that were grand and inspiring, and Abraham responded in, in faith and in worship. The problem is that once you get to verse 10, Abraham's been waiting for the fulfillment of those promises for a number of years now. And... They're still just promises. God had promised blessing through Abraham, but Abraham still didn't feel like much of a blessing. God had promised to make Abraham into a nation, but he still didn't have even one child. And God had promised to so work in Abraham's life that uh, he would lead him into a land. But as he now stands in the land still filled with Canaanites, and he's an outsider. And now famine is hit, and he's wondering whether this land that God has led him to can even sustain him. And I think that's exactly where many of us find ourselves day by day. God has made promises to us. God promises us blessing, and we hear those promises, and we respond to them in faith, But then as we wait, and it feels like such a long time for those promises to become, not promises anymore, become reality, to become something that we can touch and feel, that compromise feels like a solution. It feels like compromise will help us to stop having to wait anymore. We can get what we want, and we can get it now instead of waiting on promises. Surely Abraham felt something of this as he was uh, finding himself in Canaan. Great promises, God, but I can't exactly eat them. We're in the midst of a famine. What am I to do? And so tired of waiting, he's tempted to compromise, and he goes and tries to find his own blessing. As you see what Abraham does in verse 10, his plan seems completely reasonable. Abraham was a new immigrant to Canaan, and ethnically, he was an outsider. He would stand out. And so he would be at the bottom of the totem pole when, when it, just day-to-day life in Canaan was difficult for him as an outsider, as an, as an immigrant. But when a famine hit, he would feel it hardest, and he would feel it first. Having been affected by that, he might have prayed asked, hey God, what are you doing? 
What should I do? He might have, he might have asked God for counsel. He might have asked God for wisdom. He might have asked God to direct him. God, what are you doing? What, what, what should I do? What, what should my next step be? He might have trusted that God, having led him all the way to this land of promise and promising to bless him, that God could perhaps provide for him even in the midst of a famine, even in the midst of great difficulty. Could have done all of those things, but in a moment of challenge and opposition and temptation, he chose instead to compromise. He went down to Egypt, and it seemed like a good choice. Uh, Southern Canaan has very infrequent rains, very difficult to sustain life. Whereas uh, when, a, when, a, when a famine hits, you are at the mercy of uh, the, the weather conditions. Head to, head to Egypt, and you've got the Nile. You have this constant source of irrigation that provides for, for the land and saves you from uh, much of uh, what would otherwise come. And so it was a reasonable plan. It was a natural choice, except Abraham seemed to leave God out of that choice. He seemed to forget that it was Canaan that God had directed him to. We justify the plans that we make when we compromise. Abraham probably would have justified to himself, hey, this is not just a a famine. The the text says it was a severe one. This was a difficult thing that he was facing, after all. What choice did he have? He would have justified himself that just a a short trip. The text uses the word sojourn. It's a word that means, hey, I'm not leaving permanently. I'm just going to spend some time there. I'm going to wait out the storm. So he would have justified to himself, hey, it's not like I'm leaving altogether. I'll be back someday, but I just need to leave for a time. We play those kinds of games in our mind. We tell ourselves compromise makes sense. Compromise is really the only natural solution. But at those times when we make those decisions without God, or often in contradiction to what God has already told us, already spelled out, already directed us, we walk into compromise. I don't know too much about Abraham and Sarah's marriage. We don't get all the details, right? But I picture them traveling out of Canaan into Egypt, and I can kind of picture the scene in verse 11. It's been a long journey, and Abraham turns to Sarah, and he says, maybe somewhat tenderly, I know that you're a woman. Beautiful in appearance. And at this point, if I'm Sarah, I'm thinking, you know, it's been a long journey. I'm kind of feeling a little sweaty and probably pretty dusty. I'm kind of touched by his words. She might have blushed a little. It was kind of a a warm warm thing to say. It was a nice thing for Abraham to notice. And like most of the things that we husbands say, if only he could have just stopped talking at this point, everything could have gone so much differently. But unfortunately, he doesn't stop talking at verse 11. And so we read on what what he says in verse 12. He explains that although they're headed to Egypt, 
she is just so beautiful that when they get there, people are going to want her for their wife. And when they find out that he's the husband, off with his head. And so he asks, would you tell them that you're my sister? He's thinking about himself at this point. He explains that the reason that he has to do this, the reason that this is the only reasonable decision, the only, the, the only solution that's left to us is because his life's on the line. He doesn't at any point in the conversation mention the implications that there might be for Sarah. He knows that, that when people come looking to, uh, to, to, to marry her, he'll be treated really well. But he doesn't really think through what that will mean for her. And so often in compromise, we can get so focused on this one problem that we're trying to fix in front of us that we don't think about what that one step of compromise will mean to the people around us. What kind of compromise will it bring upon them? What kind of decisions will it force on those that are close to us? Compromise always feels like a solution, only it never is. I look at Abraham here and I think, if you have to lie to get into a country... Or if you have to lie to get into a job, or if you have to lie to get your way or get a relationship, you probably don't have any place being there. At least not at that time. It's, it's maybe God's closed the door. Maybe God hasn't had, that, that's not God's timing. It's probably not something that God wants you to be involved in. I think of this situation, I think if you have to close your eyes morally to keep a friend or hold on to a guy or to, to get, some, get some relief or to uh, do any of those things, then those are things that God just hasn't given to you right now. Maybe not his timing, maybe not this way. The problem with compromises like this is that they never just stop there. And that's what... That's what I see in Greg Mortensen's life. It, it wasn't just one compromise, but one compromise led to another and to another. And it becomes a pattern in your life. It becomes a way of dealing with life. And God wants to intervene and to rescue us from that. Compromise always feels like a solution, but it never is. As you follow Abraham next, what we see is, although, although compromise always feels like a solution, it actually breaks more than it fixes. We, we enter into uh, compromise, and when we do, we turn our backs on God's commands, hoping to solve a problem, hoping to fix an issue. But it often creates more serious problems for us. Compromise breaks more than it fixes. We already saw a little bit of this in verses 11 and 12. We saw that Abraham left the land of promise to go to Egypt. But even before he's gotten to Egypt, he says to Sarah, hey, when we get there, they're going to kill me, by the way. So we need another fix to solve this problem. And I'm thinking, 
if you knew that they were going to kill you if you went to Egypt, then why didn't you kind of think that through when you considered Egypt as a solution to the problem that you're having in Canaan? That's probably not a very good solution to begin with, right? And yet, so often, that's what we do. We, we get so absorbed in the problem in front of us that we choose compromise to try and fix that, and we don't think, well, that's going to lead to this and lead to this and lead to this. And we just kind of seem to turn off the, the blinders, turn off the, the, the warning signals that would keep us from, from dealing with those and recognizing that those are part of the problem. Often we'll try and calculate the danger and work up, uh, think up a, a workaround to deal with it, right? In fact, that, that may be what's going on here. Many, many scholars and commentators believe that what may have been going on in Abraham's mind was proposing this lie to the people around him as a way of buying some time. What many people believe he was trying to do was head into Egypt, tell people that Sarah was his sister, then probably some wealthy suitors would come up to them and say, hey, I'm really uh, interested in, in your sister here, love to marry her, and then he would en enter into some long negotiations with each of them about the price of the dowry. And while he was involved in those long, drawn-out negotiations about exactly how much money to set for uh, the marriage of his sister, he would be collecting his supplies, getting what he needed, and planning his escape back to Canaan. People believe that may have been what was going on in his mind, but so often when we compromise, plans don't always go according to plan, right? We kind of think, well, I'll just do this, and then this, 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 and this will take place, and in fact, we step into compromise and things go in a completely different direction. Certainly with Abraham, if that was his plan, things didn't go according to plan. He got to Egypt and yeah, people found his wife attractive all right, but it wasn't just some wealthy suitors who came around. Pharaoh himself took an interest and guess what? He doesn't negotiate over the price. He takes what he wants, and he tells you what the terms are. Didn't buy Abraham much time at all. And when you and I find ourselves faced with compromise, and we've got our plan of how it's all going to work out, often compromise doesn't go according to plan. You may have also taken a look at verse 16 and concluded, maybe compromise did work for Abraham. It seemed to be working to an extent, uh, but even when compromise works, it still makes things worse. In verse 16, we learn Abraham's plan did work in one sense. His life was spared. He was treated well for Sarah's sake. So well, in fact, that he received sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Abraham's living the good life. Who doesn't want to get on the right side of the brother of the Pharaoh's latest wife? He's, he's living well. It seems to work. And maybe some of you are thinking, yeah, I know I did that thing, and 
it was a compromise. Yeah, technically, I guess so. But you're thinking, I'm kind of enjoying the fruit of that. Like, things are kind of working out pretty well for me. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, I'm kind of in getting what I'd hoped for relationally or physically or materially. But we see in Abraham's life that even when things, when compromise seems to be working, creates more problems than it fixes. Why do you see this? Um, with, with all those sheep and oxen and donkeys, and when he got those, he was probably like, wow, this is great. Like, I am really raking in. Like, I've got a, I've got a huge herd here now. Only you get to the first few verses of the next chapter and the very next episode shows Abraham and Lot back in Canaan. And what, guess what they're doing? They're fighting because they have, so much, they have so much material possessions. Their herds are so big that the, the land can't sustain them. And so there is conflict, there is bitterness, there is eventually a separation. If through compromise you get something, even if it's something that you wanted, it will not be a blessing. It will turn out to be a curse. The things that we gain through compromise are not something that God wants us to have. And he'll make that known. Then in verse 17, you see Pharaoh and his, and his house afflicted with plagues. And there are plagues that come on him, not because of Pharaoh's sin, but because of Abraham's sin. That might seem like a big deal, but it's an even bigger deal if you were here last week and you were reminded, and I was reminded, that the plan was that Abraham was to be blessed so that he could be a blessing. He was to bring blessing to the nations, to be blessing to this world. And here, through his sin and compromise, we see he's brought a curse to his neighbors. He's brought plagues to Egypt. Finally, at the end of the chapter, we see Abraham and Sarah heading back to the promised land. Again, don't know too much about their relationship. I'm just, I'm a guy. I'm a husband. I know, what it, I know what it means to make some mistakes, to make some regrets. I just think that has got to be the longest camel ride that Abraham has ever taken. Right? How would you like to be sitting on the camel with Sarah beside you and you're just feeling the cold stare, right? You, you know what, what, what Sarah has been through on your behalf. You've lived through what she has had to endure because of your dumb decision. Like, remember, Sarah is the one who is through, through whom the nation is going to come. That you are going to, you are going to have a child and you are going to be this, this great nation. How, how's Sarah feeling about sharing the tent with this guy now? His decision, that one step of compromise, would have implications for their marriage long-term. Huge impact. And we're reminded that that's how compromise works. Compromise looks like a solution, looks like it'll fix something, and yet it breaks more than it fixes. 
So we said compromise feels like a solution, but it ends up breaking more than it fixes. The question, though, we're left with is, what do you do about it? Where do we go from, from there? And what we learn from Abraham is that only an uncompromising God can lead us out of compromise. God is so uncompromising in his commitment to his promises, in his commitment to his plan, in his commitment to his people, that he would rescue us from the messes that we make. Rescue us from the sin and its consequences and its devastation in our lives. We need an uncompromising God to lead us out of compromise. Now, Abraham has illustrated for us how we can, through our compromise, create impossible messes. God promised Abraham a land. Abraham left the land. God promised Abraham a nation and... Abraham gave away his wife. God promised to make Abraham a blessing to the nations, and instead he invited curse and plagues. But the message of the Bible is not just how God helps us to avoid sin. He does tell us. I believe this part of this passage is to help you and I to avoid sin and compromise. That's one of the purposes. But there is another message to the Bible, not just how to avoid sin, how to stay away from sin, but it's the amazing message that there is a God who rescues sinners. There is one who can untie the worst knots that we would create for ourselves. The turning point in this story comes in verse 17 with the phrase, but the Lord just takes three words and everything turns. Those three words remind us that there is a God who fixes problems that were unfixable. There is a God who will untie knots that were, that were just seemed like they would never be broken apart. If you're sitting wondering what your way out of compromise is this morning, if you're thinking, yeah, I did that, I got myself in the mess, this will help me for next time, but I just kind of got to live with this, there's nothing I can do. The, what you need to cling to this morning is these three words, but the Lord. With those words, there's a reminder, he can undo the impossible. He can bring a way through. He can guide even people stuck in the worst of situations, if only they would listen, if only they would turn, if only they would repent, if only they would trust in him as their hope and their guide and their salvation. One of the first ways that he unties our knots is by confronting our sin. In verse 18, Pharaoh speaks to Abraham, but the message is all God's. Pharaoh says, what is this you have done to me? And if you've been reading Genesis at all, you think, those words sound awfully familiar. I think I've heard somebody else say them. In fact, in Genesis 3.13, God said to Adam and Eve, what is this that you have done? Same question. God repeats the question. This time he brings the question through Pharaoh. I think he's got a purpose for doing that. But he asks those questions for us when, we, when he steps in to rescue us because if we will not 
confess with our mouth what we have done, admit in our heart how we have sinned against him, then no matter how often he rescues us, we are just going to keep walking back into our own sin. We will keep making for ourselves these same problems. And so he does ask for uh, him to admit it and confess it. Pharaoh goes on in verse 18, why did you tell me that she was your wife? Why did, in verse 19, why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Here the pagan is giving the follower of God a lecture in truthfulness and the problems and evils of lying. Here the pagan is more concerned about the problems of adultery than the follower of God appears to be. And those words come through Pharaoh because they feel all the more shameful through Pharaoh. Abraham should have known better. Abraham was the one who was putting up the altars. He's the one that claimed to worship the one true and holy God. And it's a reminder that we need to confront our sins before we can uh, find our way and God's uh, help through them. The passage ends in verse 20 with Pharaoh giving orders to his men. He wants to get rid of Abraham and Sarah. He doesn't want anything more to do them. The, the problems that they have caused through their deceit, the plagues that they have brought on them, he wants to get them out. And, and here it's a picture that God will use plagues if he has to. He will use whatever means at his disposal to get us back to the promised land. If you are a genuine child of God or if you are turning to him and thinking about following him, that should be an incredible encouragement to you. The problem is that there are many imposters for whom compromise and ignoring the warnings and the commands of God has become kind of a way of doing things. And there's no comfort there because he will often leave those imposters in Egypt, leave them to suffer the consequences of their own sin. We're moved by this story, but we often forget who wrote it. It was written by Moses to encourage, first of all, the children of Israel, and then ultimately has been given to us by God to speak into our lives. Like Abraham, the children of Israel often complained for their lack of food, and they wanted to go back to Egypt. Like Abraham, they often jeopardize God's blessings through compromise. Like Abraham, they would be delivered from Egypt through plagues that God brought on Pharaoh. God deliberately repeats himself like this to say, this wasn't just a one-off. This wasn't just kind of an anomaly. This is, this is how I work with people. This is kind of the standard way that I relate to people. He did it to warn us, yes. He did it to show how he will confront situations that need to be confronted. But ultimately, he showed it, he gave it to us to show us that he is the uncompromising God who can lead us out of compromise. He never abandons his plan, never forsakes his people. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The movie Nuremberg depicts the trials that took place in Nuremberg, Germany in 1945 and 1946. 
And in one scene, there's a Nazi defendant by the name of Hans Frank. And he's attempting to explain his actions to an army psychologist named Gustav Gilbert. Listen to what he says. He says, I turned over my diaries to the Americans voluntarily. You see, they proved that I tried to resign as governor general of Poland. I didn't approve of the persecution of the Jews. Anyone reading my diaries, they'll know what was in my heart. To this, the army psychologist, Gilbert, says, I believe you, Frank. And yet you did those things. How do you explain it to yourself? And Frank says, I don't know. It's as though I'm two people. The Hans Frank you see here and Hans Frank, the Nazi leader. This Frank looks at, looks at that Frank and says, you're a ter terrible person. And Gilbert asks, and what does that Frank say in reply? To which he says, that Frank says, I just wanted to keep my job. It humanizes what is the challenge of compromise. Often compromise starts with those words. I just wanted to keep my job. I just wanted to keep, keep that guy. I just wanted to get ahead. I just wanted a little relief. And with those words, we take a step into a compromise that leads to another. Feels like it's going to fix something, but it ends up breaking more than it fixes. And when we find ourselves there, the message of Scripture is that there is a God who, yes, warned us before we took the first step, but having taken that step, he intervenes in mercy. So committed is he to, his, to love for his people, so uncompromising is he in love for those whom he has created, so uncompromising in his faithfulness to his plan and to his promises that he doesn't give up, that he is willing to step back into our messes and if we would respond to him with repentance and faith in the Savior that he sent to rescue us, we would come to enjoy his great salvation, his great help, and his great blessing. People will hear this message in two ways, make conclusions in two ways this morning. Someone will say, if God is this loving and this forgiving and this gracious, then I guess it doesn't really matter. I can, I'll, I'll take that step into compromise because I think it's going to fix things. And I'll just call him to fix things when I find myself in something I can't handle. And that would be a false and very dangerous con conclusion to draw from today's passage. Because God is still the God who brings plagues and judgment to those who would ignore his words, and reject his warnings. But another person will hear the same message, hear the same passage, and they will conclude, this God is so gracious, if this God is so loving, if he is so uncompromising in his love for, for his people, 
then maybe he could even rescue me. Maybe he could even help me. There are things in my life that I have hidden, that I have boxed up and kept from even the people closest to me. But if this God is who you say he is, I might be, able to, might be willing to let him in. I might be willing to open up the box and help and invite him to rescue me from a mess that's too painful, a mess that's too shameful, and something that I just never thought would get dealt with. I want to encourage you this morning to look to the faithfulness of God and to respond to him in repentance, in confession, in faith, and in worship. If you find yourself in Egypt in a place of compromise, look to the God who can lead you out of that compromise. And if you find yourself this morning and it's feeling a little bit like you're in southern Canaan and you're in the midst of a drought, let the faithfulness of God hold you. Hold you while you wait. Encourage and strengthen you while you hear the voice of compromise and temptation and find the strength to reject it because you know that there is blessing in the God who has called you. Let's look to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we call upon you and we ask for your help. Would you help us to stop taking matters into our own hands? Would you give us the patience to wait for you? Give us the faith to trust in you and your plan. Help us to stop turning to compromise because it feels like it's reasonable, because it feels like it's our only option. And lead us back to the place of your blessing. Help untie the knots we've made of our lives. For we trust you and we praise you in the name of our great deliverer, Jesus Christ. Amen.